Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure and honor for me to be here. Uh, I want to thank Mika for introducing me and thank Shambel for inviting me over. Um, so today I'm very happy to share with you uh, my new book. Um, the title is Raising Global Families, but I know I only have 45 minutes. So I'm not going to talk about the whole book. So what I'm going to do is just to give you some uh, quick snapshot of the book. And then I want to focus on the part that is more relevant to the topic of reproduction migration in this seminar. Um, so let me start with a book you are more or less familiar with, The Battle Home of Tiger Mom. So uh, the author is Annie Chua, who was actually born and grew up in the US. She is a second generation Filipino Chinese. In this memoir, she identified herself as a Chinese mother with some superior characteristics to American motherhood. The book was published around 2010, soon after the financial crisis hit American economy. So the book really stirred anxiety among the American middle class about the declining US economy and also the rise of China. So as you can see in the book cover, it really tried to project an image of ancient China the red color, the stamp, the archaic print, etc. However, when the book was translated into Chinese and published in China, the publisher changed the title. Sunday you can read Chinese. The new title is The Way I Mother in the US. The child wearing guide of a year law professor. And then you have Emma smiling in front of the US flag. So Actually, if you go to a bookstore in Taiwan or China, you will see plenty of similar books like this. Most of them are translated from Western scholar experts like pediatrician, educator, uh, and also local scholar with substantial transnational experiences. So I call this genre cosmopolitan parenting. And, and this book sells really good over there. And really, uh, the, the target readers are those parents who are keen in learning about cosmopolitan, actually Western, ideas of child rearing. And many of these families, uh, I'm going to talk about their reproduction migration strategy later on. However, why the Taiwanese middle class parents are moving to America or other parts of the Western country to learn about cosmopolitan parenting to break from the tradition of rote learning and authoritative parenting. Immigrant parents from Taiwan in the US are worried about very different things. You might have heard about the ongoing Harvard admission trial recently. So it's basically a conservative organization called Students for Fair Admission, they are on behalf of Asian American candidates to sue Harvard for unfair treatment in the process of college admission. So almost every single middle class immigrant I interviewed in the US expressed their worry about the dubious existence of so-called Asian quota. That means Asian American applicants have to fight, compete with other overqualified Asian students 
So the bar to enter elite colleges like Harvard is much higher for Asians. And um, when I was doing the interviews around 2011-12, American economy was doing rather bad. So many of them, many of these immigrants start to wonder whether their American dream has shattered. In particular, they are concerned about the possibility of Western decline and Asian ascendancy. In fact, many of the second generation Asian Americans are actually moving back to Asia. It's not really a return migration, but they are returning to their parents' home country. They're doing so partly to escape the declining economy in the US, but also to escape racial inequality and discrimination in the US. So I'm starting with these two episodes across the Pacific, and I want to focus on uh, the ideas uh, related to the theme in the seminar, that is reproduction, migration, and I want to talk about the key concept I raised in the book, that is parenting as global security strategies. So let me quote from Professor Xiangbiao about the definition of reproduction, migration. Uh, he defines as the movement of people for the purpose of maintaining and reproducing life, both individual and collective. And, and here in the seminar, we are exploring some really interesting questions such as how may a reproduction migration reinforce, reconfigure inequality? And what values are generated, reinforced, and undermined in the process? So my topic focuses on child rearing. A lot of literature has looked at child rearing as a process of cultural reproduction. We deliver cultural values and norms to the next generation. So a lot of literature, especially in the psychology and also the general public, they tend to contribute the success, academic success, of Asian American nation to their ethnic cultural background. That is Confucius culture that highlights a lot on um, education. I think uh, arguments as such has problem, one, they tend to essentialize ethnic culture and overlook how ethnic culture evolve over time. And secondly, they tend to overlook differences among the country and see the, the, the society or the ethnic group as homogenous whole. In the US, there has been study that emphasized that the so-called Confucius culture or the emphasis on education is not necessarily an ethnic cultural characteristic but a class-based mindset. It is because the post-1965 immigration from Asia to the US is actually a very selected group. These are highly educated professional mostly. So it is an intersection between ethnicity and social class. And a lot of people also look at child rearing as a process of class reproduction, especially among sociologists. We have a researcher like Pierre Bourdieu and Nella Rowe who look at how middle class parenting is a practice of La Rowe called concerted cultivation. That is, parents are doing a lot of things 
to organize children's learning and leisure activities in order to cultivate particular mindset capacity or habitus. But we also have a study like Diane Ray and her colleague who look at the white middle class parenting in the UK or London in particular and they argue that middle class is not a homogenous group. They have different orientation and preferences. For example, those politically progressive middle class parents deliberately send their children to urban school in order to expose them to more multicultural, multiracial environments. So I think it's, it's very important for us to remember that concertive cultivation unfolds in different forms. And it's also important to remember that the rising anxiety among the middle class has a lot to do not only with local competition, but also the global context. The increasing talent competitions across the globe is a context I'm going to talk about in the case of Taiwan. And finally, uh, the talk, most people here is the Department of Anthropology. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Iowa Ohm's work, Flexible Citizenship. So in the book, she talks about the super rich Asian. Uh, parents are converting their economic capital into cultural capital, cosmopolitan exposure, etc. So she called the process flexible capital accumulation. Although I'm very inspired by Iwan's work, but I find that the kind of parents, the elite family she is talking about, is somewhat different from the professional middle class parents I interviewed. The term flexible capital accumulation has a very strong connotation that the decision of child rearing and conservative cultivation is a rational decision to maximize interest of class reduction. But among the parents I talked to who are not so wealthy, but they are financially comfortable, they have a more anxiety about potential insecurity in children's life and future. In fact, most of them don't know what exactly is the correct way to do what exactly is a rational decision to do. What they can do is not to maximizing the interest for children, but rather to minimizing the risk and insecurity they imagine to happen in children's future. So that's why in the book, I want to talk about the emotional life, uh, the emotional politics of family life. In particular, I look at child rearing or parenting as some sort of emotional work. Parents have to engage to maintain a sense of security in family life. Here I am inspired by Marion Cooper's concept. In her book, Cut Adrift, she talks about American families' emotional work of security project. It's very interesting that she <coughs> argues the resourceful or the wealthy has this tendency to upscale insecurity in their life. They live very comfortable life, actually. Their children most likely are going to be just all right. 
they tend to feel more nervous and anxious about children's future. On the other hand, the resource-poor families tend to downplay the insecurity in their life. Otherwise, they cannot survive. So, based on all this, I established a concept in my book I call child-rearing as global security strategy. With this concept, I want to look into the emotional policies of family life in a time of rapid change and uncertainty. And in particular, I want to highlight the global context that situates both parents' mm -hmm. perception of risk and the strategies for mitigating insecurity. And I also want to emphasize that this global security strategy is very class-specific and also location-sensitive. So that's why um, in my research, I want to cover both Taiwan and the US. Um, so when I say global Taiwan, I'm talking about we look at Taiwan, but include Taiwanese immigration and diaspora outside of Taiwan. I think Taiwan is an interesting case in many aspects. Uh, first of all, it is a classic case of compressed modernity. Um, the, the country had went through an organized program of family planning just 50 years ago. But right now, the society is facing very serious fertility crisis. And the, the educational institution has also uh, gone through drastic reforms since 1990, so it opened up possibility for parents to choose different curriculum and school for their children. And like I said earlier, I think uh, many research in the US or even in the UK has suffered from the problem of with migration scholar called methodological nationalism. That is, they only look at status mobility or class reproduction within a single nation state. But if you go to a country like Taiwan, South Korea, Asia, you know how important the global forces play in a part of education or child-rearing. So uh, very briefly on the research methods, I conducted a multi-sided research in Taiwan. I interviewed parents. Um, from 57 household and also in the US Boston area in particular, I interviewed immigrants from both Taiwan and China because I need to have class variation. That's why in the US I also include those from PRC. Um, the way I measure social class is basically follow uh, a common way of doing among sociologists. I am going to use middle class as a shortcut throughout the talk. But what I refer to is a really professional middle class. So these are parents who have a four-year university degree or higher, especially among immigrants. They are very highly educated. And the working class are those who has a high school degree or lower. Sorry, what, what do you mean so, by the richest 20 to 40 percent? Say that again. What do you mean by income of the income, oh, So, so the their richest. income occupies uh, the richest uh, 20 or 20 to 40 percent. Among the whole population, among the whole population. So, um, is that the middle class? Professional middle class. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not exactly those in the middle. I'm talking about um, the professional middle class. Uh, 
could be some of them are equivalent to upper middle class, uh, but some of them are, are are probably not so wealthy. Yeah. So so these are probably uh, people who work as lawyer, manager, engineer, financial worker, etc. Okay. So basically, the book covers uh, four different groups of parents. We have middle class and working class in Taiwan, and middle class and working class immigrant in the US. But I'm just going to talk about uh, some of their uh, reproduction migration strategy today. So what do I wanted to uh, compare or include both Taiwan and immigrant America? Because I, by, by comparing parents of same age cohort in the country of origin and in the adopted country, I want to disentangle the intersection of ethnicity and social class, and also to identify the nuanced differences of cultural negotiation across social contexts. The question I ask in the book is, uh, what kind of risk and security do parents perceive as salient in their children's future? based on their past class experience and their imagination of the globalized world, how do parents navigate special and cultural mobility? I mean, some of them actually move geographically, but some of them simply mobilize cultural resources from overseas to help them to choose school and arrange extracurricular activities <coughs> to maintain their particular version of security. And finally, I am interested in how does the rupture between cultural script, how you should parents normatively, and institutional structures such as school and labor market, and this juncture between the global and the local create unintended consequences in family life. So, let me move on to talk about the empirical analysis, and I will start with those resourceful families. So in Taiwan, like I mentioned, many of them are trying to cultivate the Western cultural capital for their children. And there is actually a big growing industry to facilitate such reproduction migration. We have an increasing number of private high schools, and many of them have um, international class that adopt American curriculum and uh, prep students for future college admission to the US mostly. And then we also have immigration agency who is trying to process, help the family to get uh, the second passport. Like some, a lawyer couple I interviewed, they purchased, they spent uh, 25,000 British pounds to get a passport in Burkina Faso. Of course they are not moving there. They are just using this passport so their children can attend international school in Taiwan. Um, those who are mostly keen into such reproduction migration strategy are those transnational middle class. So, so this, these are a particular segment uh, among the professional middle class I was talking about. And these people mostly have Western degrees and they have sufficient English skill. Their occupation are strongly tied to global production, engineer, financial worker, manager, etc. So to them, in their own class experience, they view globalization as a source of opportunities, but also a source of risk 
because their children are going to face increasing competition with um, foreign talent. In, in particular, they feel ambivalent about the rise of China. On the other hand, uh, the Chinese economy does offer increasing opportunity for, for other Chinese-speaking uh, individuals. But they are also worried about uh, their children are going to face very fierce competition with PRC students. In Taiwan, PRC students are usually described as wolf-like. That is, they tend to be a bit more aggressive because they grow up in a very com competitive system. By contrast, the Taiwanese youth are, are, are described as sheep-like. They are much more mild, you know, because they grow up in a democracy, etc. So, so they are concerned their sheep-like children are not able to, to compete against the wolf-like PRC children. So to deal with risk and uncertainty, the parents tend to believe that Western education can provide some educational niches for their children. So they can become much more creative, flexible, imaginative by receiving Western education to cultivate so-called global competencies which include foreign language proficiency, self-confidence, communication, flexible thinking, cross-cultural sensibility. It's important to remember that these global competencies, which are actually pretty general positive characteristics, but it tend to be conflicted with outcome of Western education in this process. So, this strategy are generally very expensive to go to international school or private school. And like I said earlier, it is mostly adopted, commonly adopted by transnational middle class. How about those parents who are not so cosmopolitan themselves, but they share similar global aspiration? So they, they seek cheaper option of global education. If you cannot afford summer camps or overseas study in the US or the UK, you send your children to Singapore or the Philippines at half the cost. And if you want something even cheaper, you send your children to all English camps in Taiwan. That is, you go to a camp which is in Taiwan, but everybody pretend they are in somewhere else. Everybody speaks English over there. Um, for this not so cosmopolitan parents, it is hard for them to evaluate whether such cosmopolitan exposure is authentic. So like this mother said to me in frustration, quote, I don't think they learn anything there, which is an all-English camp in, in Taiwan. To American children, simply play like that. So when parents adopt such a uh, Strategy, they face cultural contradiction. Like on the one hand, they want children to enjoy a happy childhood, but they want them to achieve global success. They want their children to enjoy some, to develop a sense of autonomy, but at the same time, they micromanage children's life. And also, like I say, these strategies are very expensive. It not only incurs rising economic costs, but also emotional costs. Interesting, many of these fathers end up have to work in overseas in order to make enough money to afford 
private school or, or international study for their children. So, so there's a growing uh, trend of transnational fatherhood I talk about in the book. And remember this father wanted to be a different kind of father to accompany their children, but end up as unintended consequences, they have to leave the family behind to make more money. How about the US? The strategy I, I call is cultivating ethnic cultural capital. These parents are worried that even though Asian Americans in the US is usually attached with the image of the model minority, but they may also view as forever foreigner. So as such, they worry about the possibility, the existence of Asian quota. I think permissive parenting as a white privilege minority group cannot afford. Like this Mother's Day, as immigrants, you have to, you must be twice as good. For the second generation, maybe one and a half. So what they do, why, why do they think this way? In my interview, they widely share a narrative of lost confidence. Many of these immigrants, remember these are highly educated. They have master or PhD. They actually earn a very decent salary. But many of them feel that they will suffer black mobility at American workplaces at some point because their shortage in local cultural knowledge and social skill, they fail to penetrate old boy network. They will bump into the so-called bamboo ceiling for Asian Americans. And some also regret losing entrepreneurial opportunity back to Taiwan during the 90s. So because of this, many of these immigrants, especially father, right now they try to reorient their life goals toward family and children. They see child rearing as some kind of project that is occupying the major attention of their life. So the strategy I say, I call cultivating ethnic cultural capital involve things like they affirm cultural differences between Chinese or Taiwanese and American. They like to highlight the values such as discipline, diligence, frugality. By doing so, they help to protect their children against entitlement or consumerism among American youth. Um, like this Mother's Day, I'm not going to uh, read the quote. And they also see, they wanted to instill a sense of immigrant toughness as an ethnic cultural capital for their children, which refers to the value, language, cultural, lifestyle, network, and resources associated with their immigrant background. But I want to emphasize that. The so-called ethnic cultural capital is not something they were born with and they just simply carry them along to the US. It actually involves a dynamic process of cultural negotiation in which immigrant parents selectively mobilize their cultural heritage and often mix and match with value and practice in a new country. So earlier we see the Taiwanese middle-class parents are moving to the West as a cultural, as a practice of cultural mobility. Here we will see a reverse, reverse direction of cultural mobility among immigrants. 
Many of them right now are importing learning kits from Asia. If their children can read Chinese, they get textbook of math and, and, and science from Taiwan or China. If their children cannot read uh, Chinese, they import material from Singapore. Um, they want their children to learn Chinese language, not just for the reason of cultural reproduction, but also to emphasize instrumental function of Chinese language, because their children might at some point return to Asia or the greater China. And also they, they send their children to ethnic cultural enrichment program, and during the summer, they send their children back to Taiwan for the preparation of SAT. Again, I want to emphasize this strategy often create unintended paradoxical outcome. In the US, the strategy I talk about, many of them ha has lead to tension across generation. Because the second generations, they are not immigrants after all. Um, so they want to go to the soccer game on Sunday. Instead, their parents want them to go to Chinese language school. And also, the strategy does not necessarily bring positive outcome for their children. Instead, in many cases, it could reinforce racial authorization. For example, it reinforces the stereotype that Asian students' excellency is actually a product of tiger parenting. Um, and even uh, with the language skill, for example, the college admission officer may treat Chinese language ability as some inherited trait rather than a hardened skill. You look Chinese, of course, you speak Chinese, etc. So now let me move on to talk about the resource poor, the working class in Taiwan and also the working class immigrants. <coughs> For the working class family in Taiwan, many of them are not moving anywhere. Um, but that does not mean they are they are they are still under great impact of economic and cultural globalization. The most significant part of my uh, research uh, informants are those who enter cross-border marriages. So these husbands are mostly working class Taiwanese men who suffer rising unemployment or underemployment because the increasing flows of um, Taiwan's capital moving to China or Southeast Asia and also the labor inflow, the migrant workers from, from Southeast Asia. So a lot of these men become undesirable mates in the local marriage markets. As such, they go to China and Vietnam to look for brides. And their children, um, the peak years of such cross-border marriages happen in early to mid 1990s. So many of these children have entered school. So roughly one quarter, one quarter of the public school pupils are children of the cross-border marriages. So in the past, they were called the new Taiwanese children. So the term carried a strong connotation of simulation. But recently, they have been, the terminology has changed into a new second generation. 
the parents, immigrant mothers I interview, they try to, they also participate in some sort of reproduction migration, but for very different reasons, in very different forms. Most of them um, send their children back to China or Vietnam under the care of grandparents because they have to work in Taiwan and they need help with uh, childcare. So this is what I call transnational transfer of childcare. How does a Taiwanese society perceive such reproduction, migration? In the past, in particular, such migration trajectory was associated with negative uh, consequences. <coughs> such as this magazine, the Business Weekly, has published a, a special issue on Taiwanese kids in the Mekong Delta. So report there were probably like 3,000 children of such uh, marriage. And, and their children uh, are sent to Vietnam under the care of grandparents. And they are concerned whether these children can receive proper education, in, per in particular, proper education on Chinese language. But the societal view has changed somewhat in recent time. So I was talking about the cultivation of Western cultural capital among the middle class. So we wonder, is it possible to cultivate some sort of Southern cultural capital for these children of Vietnamese mothers? This quote comes from an Indonesian mother. Uh, she was telling me about uh, how her husband perceived uh, the use of learning Indonesian for their children. Earlier, the husband said, there's, a new, there's no, no use for the children to learn Indonesian because we live in Taiwan and not in Indonesia. But recently, he changed his mind. Now, he keeps telling her to teach the son Indonesian so he can go make money in Southeast Asia. So the reason the husband changed his mind actually has a lot to do with the policy turn in the broader institutional context. Taiwan's government started this new South Fund policy since 2016 because the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, she is an independent leaning president, so she her government tried to um, try to reduce Taiwan's economic dependence on Chinese markets. So they are encouraging the capital to go south, that is Southeast East Asia. And the government official has been saying things like this, like this I quote, they perceive mixed children as the best human capital for Taiwan to deploy the Southeast Asian market. So it's interesting this um, policy term, which actually has a very strong geopolitical and developmental purpose, but it has a, a triple down effect among the families of cross-border marriages. So cultural differences of this second generation now has shifted the meaning it used to be seen as a burden, but right now it's started to be seen as an asset. But still, I think such multiculturalism is a very neoliberal type. It has um, 
it can create benefits for this second generation. But again, they only recognize cultural differences when the cultural differences can be converted into something instrumental. How about the US? They are also doing something very similar. They are also the working class immigrants in the US. They are also sending their children back to China uh, for, for, for childcare. Um, psychologists has developed, has coined this term satellite baby to describe. Like I mentioned, the, the census and other study has established that a big proportion of working class immigrants in the US are doing this, especially among the undocumented immigrants. There's also documentary about this satellite baby or satellite children. And it's interesting to see how the US American public frame such a phenomenon, also negatively, but with different framework. Like this documentary, the filmmaker is saying um, the trauma these children experience after being shuttled between two worlds. More often than not, they feel like they don't belong anywhere. So they are considering possibility, negative consequences, such as disrupted infant and early childhood attachment. Attachment is a very strong cultural framework. Americans are, are looking at this phenomenon. They are also worried about the children's confused cultural identity. They will not feel American nor Chinese. And also, in, there's also another another reproduction migration strategy, which I observe among the working class immigrant. That is when children enter teenage years, parents feel frustrated at enforcing discipline. And then they, they send their children back to China for a period of time to shake them up. Like this father say, uh, he was worried that um, you cannot spend children in the U.S. because the children will go tell the teacher you abuse them. So they will send their children back to China so they will learn what is right or wrong, etc. So they are using this, I call, transnational discipline as a strategy. They rely on key network in China to enforce a discipline and instill what they believe as characteristic of Chinese moral values against the alleged corrupting forces of American youth culture. And they are using strategy as a solution. It actually reflects their predicament as working class immigrants in the US because they struggle with a loss of authority at home. Remember, these are parents, these are immigrant parents who cannot speak English quite well. So in everyday family life, they actually rely on their children as interpreting, translator or interpreter. So the, the, the dynamic across generation has shifted. And also they feel a, a strong sense of powerlessness in the US society. So now let me move on to talk about the conclusion and uh, to raise some possible uh, research agenda associated with our theme today. Um, in the book, I look into child rearing to examine 
cultural transformation and persistent inequality in the context of immigration and globalization. There actually, in the migration study, we have some useful concepts I want to engage here. The first one is global householding by Mike Douglas. He used this term to describe a variety of situations in which the formation and sustenance household is increasingly reliant on the global movements of people and transaction among household members who originate from or reside in more than one national territory. I think cross-border marriage is kind of a typical global households people have in mind. But in this book, I kind of extend the idea of household, global householding and to talk about those people even though they are not moving anywhere, but they are mobilizing time-space compression to help them raise global children. So the question I think we should ask is how the global is imagined and lived differently across social economic spectrum. Even though some of them are not moving anywhere geographically, they are still uh, participating in what I call cultural mobility like we have heard about among the Taiwanese middle class uh, in today's talk. And the other concept that's still uh, very inspirational is Doreen Massey's idea, power geometry of time-space compression. So she, she talks about um, how different social groups and individuals are placed in very distinct ways in relation to time-space compression as an outcome of globalization. Um, in my book, when I include these four groups of parents, I look at them uh, in a transnational social space to extend Bourdieu's idea of social space. Um, when I see them in this social, transnational social space, I do not just compare their differences. I also want to emphasize how they are in relation to each other. Just a quick example, we have seen how middle class Taiwanese who have this tendency to romanticize how American childhood is like, or American childhood, Western childhood. At the same time, the middle class immigrants are looking to class peers in their home country to emphasize um, how important for them to engage or cultivate ethnic cultural capital. For example, an immigrant mother will tell her children, you know how hard children in Beijing are working, how, how advanced their math skills are, you better finish the homework I assigned to you in extra. Um, so in the book, I propose the idea of transnational relational analysis of class inequality. It's, it's not a very catchy term. <laughs> but I want to emphasize, again, I think this is extension of Bourdieu's uh, emphasis on relational analysis of social class. And I want to emphasize we need to include the transnational and global scale of analysis. So, um, I already mentioned this earlier, I think the transnational social field described that parents across class and national divides compare, connect, and compete with each other while exchanging ideas, circulating resources, 
and modifying practices in raising their children. And it's also remembered to, to borrow the ideas from Massey, the power geometry, to look into how the hypermobility of some family come at the expenses of limiting the life opportunity of those who are trapped locally. So as a migration scholar, I think it is very important for us to, to look into not just geographical migration, and to look into how those people who might be immobile geographically, but their life chances are strongly connected with those who move around. So I raise questions like this, I'm not going to read them. Um, um, but I think these are uh, useful questions for us to explore in the future, such what sorts of physical and cultural mobility are possible and frequent. How are those who seem immobile actually linked to the mobility of the others? Who and what control the mobility of some people and abstract the mobility of the others? How can some mobility be more easily converted into capital and power while others cannot? In what circumstances does transnational mobility lead to special or cultural entrapment as institutionalized power relations constrain rights, choices, and life chances? So I'm running out of time, so I'm going to stop here. So I'm happy to revisit some of the points I didn't mention earlier. Thank you very much.